following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. As the fourth and fifth graders are taking off, if you would open up your Bibles to First Peter is where we're going to be at today. First Peter chapter four, actually. Peter, um, if you open up your Bible uh, to the book of Revelation, which is the last book, and just work your way back to the left, you will see First Peter. If you don't have a Bible in the Pew Bibles, it is going to be page 1890. The wording is going to be a little bit different. Our Pew Bibles are NIV, and I preach out of what is called the ESV, or the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, and as we look at First Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 1, we are diving back into our series on Peter. And if you're curious how we kind of got here, you can go to Community Gospel Church slash messages, and you will see um, those uh, messages there. Um, as I was studying, I was trying to think about this. What makes you different, and uh, what makes me different? And uh, I, I know what makes me different. Um, if I do not tend to my eyebrows, they will grow together, <laughs> and I will have one eyebrow. That's me. Um, and uh, there are a couple people who have embraced that. I'm not there yet, okay? So uh, I also know that they will uh, look like caterpillars have died on my face uh, if I don't take care of them. So we tend to eyebrows. And I think, I think you should tend to your eyebrows, just uh, quite honestly. Um, also, I've, I've noticed uh, that my nose is a little bit bigger than the average human beings. Um, and I was made aware of that when I was in Israel. And I was uh, talking with some people and they asked if I was Jewish. And I, I'm not Jewish, and I, I didn't realize that Jewish people had uh, uh, extra large noses. And uh, I never noticed it, so they noticed it. So if you want to take that up with, with me, you're taking it up with the wrong person. Israel is a 24-hour flight. Have fun uh, talking to them about that. Um, when I was a kid, uh, one of the ways that people knew I was different was my mom always said, your voice carried. Um, she never said I was loud. She just said my voice carried. I didn't realize that was a good thing. Um, it wasn't a good thing in, in elementary school. What makes you different? If you don't know, look at your spouse, and I'm sure they'll tell you. If you don't have a spouse, look at your friend. They'll tell you. If you don't have a friend, look at somebody, and they'll tell you, I promise, um, especially in today's society. In First Peter chapter 4, he says, you should not be different because of your external appearance. That's how God's wired you. That's how he's made you. But there should be something different about you. There should be something distinct about us as believers in Jesus Christ. He says that we should look different from the rest of the world. We should talk different. We should function different. And that's what chapter 4 is going to slowly unpack for us. He says this is how we become uncommon in this secular world. Christ lived. He suffered. He died so that you wouldn't just be free from evil, but so that you would be able to overcome evil and function in accordance with what God's Word says. You could have an example to follow, not societies. 
And so Peter essentially says, this is how you become distinctly different for Christ. Let's pray before we look at this passage, pray for clarity and that we would see God's truth. Heavenly Father, thanks for uh, the joy of preaching and teaching and sometimes the struggle of preaching and teaching. It is hard because we come across passages and we just want to skip over them, but we can't. We have to look at them for what they are and what they tell us, and then we have to implement accordingly. And today is one of those messages where this could sting a little bit. And I just pray, God, that you would help me be clear and that we would all be able to implement. And that as we study your word, you would realize that you work with us and not at us. And that your desire is to conform us to your image and to your will, not because you don't like us, but the opposite, because you love us and you care for us and you want what's best for us. And you you put guidelines and restrictions and you tell your children, this is how you should act because it brings honor and glory to you. But also it is a path that we should follow because it's one where we find joy and peace and all the fruit of the spirit can be manifested in that. And so help us not to see this as something that hurts, but something that helps. And speak through me according to your word, not, not my words, but yours. And may you be honored and glorified with all that happens and transpires here in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the same, or in the flesh, Arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ has. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We're just going to stop there. There's a command here, and the command is that you arm yourself. Now, if you look at that passage of Scripture, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. What is he talking about? Well, that's previous verses, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Peter explained that Christ suffered and died for sins once, not multiple times. There are other faiths, uh, other religions, that love to crucify Jesus over and over and over again. And we don't crucify Christ over and over again. He died once for sin. And because of that, all believers should be ready to suffer as Christ suffered. Why? So if you're hearing this passage of Scripture from Peter, you're dealing with an immense amount of persecution. So the first thing that you deal with as a believer is that when you start to function like Christ functions, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, why do you act the way that you act? And you're going to get persecuted for your faith. We don't tell people this when they come to know the gospel, do we? It's not like evangelism 101. Would you like to come to know Jesus? So that people can pummel you for your faith? But also, he says, no, not only will you suffer physically in persecution, but you also have to stay away and stand guard against sin. Now, none of this should take us by concern. Because Jesus said in John chapter 16, in this world, you will have trouble. So why are we so surprised when we have trouble in the world? It's like it takes us off guard. Jesus says, take heart. Now, if you look back in chapter 3, verse 17, Peter states that when and if believers suffer, it should be suffering for doing good in order that you would be a good witness 
to those who do not believe. So the people who are far from God would be able to come to a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Take that a step further. Peter also says that believers should be ready to suffer as Christ suffered in order to stay away from sin. Now, if you look at that passage, okay, and he says uh, to stay away from sin, arm yourself in the same way of thinking, for Christ has suffered in the flesh also and cease from sin. It's the same language that Paul uses in Ephesians 6.13, talking about taking up the whole armor of God. So to arm yourself, in Peter's language, it's the same language Paul uses in regards to taking up the full armor of God. Now, this is a military metaphor. It means that you have to equip yourself with the necessary tools in order to be ready for something to achieve a specific purpose. How often do we come to a relationship with God through faith in Christ and we just think that God is going to do all the work for us? If only. Imagine how that would work in your marriage. Can you imagine that? Your wedding day, you take your wedding vows and you think to yourself, I'm off the hook. She's going to do everything for me from here on out. That is not happy wife, happy life. And I would advise against it. For believers, we are to arm ourselves, take the necessary tools that is needed for godliness in order to be ready for something, persecution and sin, to achieve a specific purpose so that you would be able to honor the Lord with all you think, say, and do. For believers, we are ready. Now, what's interesting to me is we see this played out in our day all the time, don't we? People arm themselves all the time. Look, you have police officers who put on a specific uniform and they're ready to go. Can you imagine if you met a police officer in common everyday clothes? Some of you have. They're called undercover. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Not good? All right. Or we go to doctors. Can you imagine if doctor was sitting there uh, across from you in a t-shirt and shorts? Some of you have probably been there and you thought to yourself, I ended up in the wrong place. Or if you sit down to do crafts with your kids, you arm yourself in regards to putting on the proper clothes because you know that this thing's going to go south in a hurry. Bethany puts down a whole big tablecloth over top of our table so that it doesn't get ruined when the kids want to paint. <laughs> or when we go to work out or to the gym, we have functional fitness clothing now. Which is amazing. We do this all the time, but the question on the table is, we are so big at arming ourselves with the proper clothes, but as believers, do we arm ourselves internally with what God's Word says, having the same attitude as Christ had. And this is a daily discipline. We adopt, and, and you were probably wondering, what is Christ's attitude? That word attitude is literally a thought or same way of thinking in regards to persecution and being able to say no to sin. Because Jesus was just like us as humans. And he was able to overcome. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, that God's word is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart in the battle against sin. And as Christ suffered in his body, we now as believers suffer in ours to proclaim Jesus' name and to eliminate sin. And if Christ was able to cease from sin, 
then what we need to know as believers is you too can win the war against sin. I think believers have gotten to a place where we've forgotten that we are able to overcome that which trips us up. We have the mindset that Satan will always win. Where did you read that? We are more than conquerors in Christ who died for us. Look at some of these verses. You might not be able to read them, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ, who have pledged their devotion to Christ, who have confessed that they are sinners and believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are crucified with Christ in the passions of the desires of this world. Romans chapter 6, verse 2 says, how can you who have died to sin still live in that sin? How can you still operate in that dysfunction? Why would you continue to uh, submit yourself to that which is killing you? Romans chapter 6 says, No longer be a slave to sin, but anyone who's died is free from sin. Now Peter continues because he says, That's the command to arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ, and we ask why. What is the purpose? Well, this honors Christ. Let's look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of time. That means time here on earth. In the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. They live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Help me, Jesus, with that verse in just a second. With respect to this, they are surprised. Those Gentiles, those people who don't know God, those people who are far from God, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now pause here. When you are armed well, Christian soldier, in persecution in the battle with sin, your faith is strengthened and so is the quality of your life. But the war is always going to rage on. Sometimes I think we think to ourselves, when will this cease? Is there just going to come a time where I can stop having problems? And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, get it. guess what? No. Isn't that great to hear? That in this world you will have troubles? And so that, we must be in continual submission. Why? Well, he says, in continual submission, you are able to overcome human passions. You could circle that word passions, or you might have desires. They are still present in us because we live in this body. And Peter tells us that they can be put aside to follow the will of God. James 4, 7. You don't have to go there. Let me read it to you. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, arming yourself is a military term, but submission here is also a military term. It means to arrange yourself under the command of a divine viewpoint. For those of us who have kids, how many times have you looked at your kids and said, life is better if you would just listen to me? Life would just be better if you just followed the instruction that I gave to you. Grandparents, you don't understand this, okay? You've lost that parenting skill. Sometimes it went away. I don't know what happened or what transpired, but you guys are just like all out. Let's see how badly we can torture the kids. I'm talking to you, mom. I know you're listening. 
I know you function. He says, no, this is a military term. Arrange yourself under the command of a divine viewpoint. So either, and this is hard, either church, we are, li- we are living underneath of our own secular humanism and listening to what we want, or we are underneath divine direction. Human passions can be eliminated the more submissive we are underneath the authority of God's word over our own. And so we would ask the question, but what is God's will? What is God's will for our life? According to Peter, I'm going to read this because this is a summary of chapter 2 and 3. According to Peter, God's will is that you first would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, acting with respect and love in the evangelistic efforts, living underneath of God in adoration of His free gift that He has bestowed upon us, preparing to suffer for the gospel, working to eliminate sin and a sinful life, rejecting evil and human desires and shameful actions as the unbelievers participate in. That is God's will for your life. And Peter says, as believers, we are no longer to live in the sinful past. We've already spent enough time doing so. You've already been there. You had your fun. And now let's move on into adulthood. In verse 3 it says, The time has passed for doing what the Gentiles did. If you know Jesus, we've spent enough time with sin and it's time for us to move on. So we spend the rest of our earthly life putting aside human sinful desires and following God's will. Why? Because the secular world has nothing to offer you. It's lying to you. The advertisements, the media, everything that's coming in is lying to us because it does not point us to the awe of God and who He is. It does not tell us the devotion that He has to His people, that He loves us and He died on the cross for our sins. Look at this. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read this to you. For the grace of God has been revealed, been made known. You know it. It brings salvation to all people. And we are instructed according to God's word To turn from godless living and sinful pleasures, we should live in this evil world according to wisdom, righteousness, and devotion of who? Of God. Not of yourself, but of God. While we look forward with hope to the wonderful day when we all get to heaven. That's not in the Bible, by the way. That's a hymn. That God would reveal His glory, our great Savior, Jesus Christ, when he will be revealed. Look at verse 14. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. To cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to good deeds. That doesn't sound like a God who hates me. That sounds like a God who loves me. That's like a father who's concerned about me, who cares for me. If that wasn't enough, you could look at 1 John chapter 2 and it says, For the world offers a craving of physical pleasure which is here today and gone tomorrow. If you've ever eaten a Reese's peanut butter cup, you know this to be true. Right? Man, those are good. But then that ceases. Just a minute and it's gone. Right? Or like watermelon for me. Man, I eat a whole watermelon. And I think to myself, where's the next watermelon? Right? Worldly pleasure, and it's here today, gone tomorrow. 
That's totally unbiblical to this passage. He says, a craving for everything that we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions, these are not from the Father, but they're from this world. And this is if we needed some help. Peter knows how uh, slow we are to get this. And he labels and he gives us a list. Look at this list. And this is a very similar list that Paul has already outlined in Romans chapter 13, verse 13. This is a list that shows us what doesn't please God. This is a list that shows us what belongs in the dark. This is a list that has no place in the believer's life. And this is going to hurt a little bit because it's very, very, very close to our world right now. First column, sensuality and passions go together. Sensuality is sinful abandon or license. Passions is evil cravings. So this is any open or excessive indulgence in sin and sinful desires. You know your bent, okay? You know what the world has to offer that just draws you in. This is where man falls victim when he is cut off from God. This is what characterized Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what characterizes our world. Okay, If you look at that first category and call, you say, hey, what is the status of the world? That's the status of the world right there. That man has run to his own sinful abandon and he craves pure evil. He is seeking after his own pleasures and not God's. So we realize that unbelievers pattern their lives after their own desires, following their desires, and are unable to control them. Unless... We come to Christ. And most of the time, what we realize is the world, when they pattern after their own passions and sensualities, they have no shame. They have a strong desire for immorality. It is a characteristic of the non-believer. That they are bent on their own passions. Middle column. Speaks of drunkenness, habitual intoxication, referring to the excessive use of wine and strong drink. The word orgies is really tying into drunkenness here in the context of the passage. And binge party is a party where somebody can drink the most, which happened in the New Testament, it happened in the Old Testament, and it still happens today. All of these are examples of occasions when people get together to drink a great deal of alcohol and act in a shameful manner. It is a characteristic of the unsaved world. Ouch. And what we see here in this passage is this shows us that people were often associated with pagan gods when they participated in this. Now I'm going to leave this right here and then we're going to let it go, okay? But there is absolute zero good that comes from alcohol. Straight up. You can try to justify it all you want, You can look at it for all you want and you can say, well, there he is talking about not drinking. The Bible speaks about not drinking more than almost any other subject. Prove it wrong. Pour all the alcohol out, go sober for a while and see if your life is better without the drink. The Bible talks about it. Third category. I can feel the tension rising. All right. Prohibited idolatry, which is lawless idolatry, 
And this is plural in reference to idolatrous acts. It is a culmination of above acts associated with the worship of pagan gods. So just track here with the columns, okay? The identification of pagans is that they run after their own sinful abandon, craving evil desires. It moves into them being drunk on what the world has to offer, and they participate this with others, so they pull their own people in with them, and then all of a sudden that leads to the worship of a pagan god. Okay? So, you guys probably asked, like, well, how do we know somebody has fallen away from the Lord? Like, right? Like, made steps to just kind of move themselves farther from God. I think this is exactly how it happens. Okay? It's, it's a slow, steady drip into prohibited <clears throat> idolatry. What Peter's saying here is, listen, as people are reading this in their homes, he's like, believers, you're odd ducks. Okay? You don't plunge into every party. You go to church. Peter's looking at it and he's like, uh, when other people play sports, enjoy the sun, catch up on sleep, you find yourself here in the sanctuary. You give money when other people look at it from maximizing their investment potential. You pray about normal matters that people sue over. And he says, ultimately, you're satisfied with monogamy. That you would delight in your spouse. And the world looked at Peter's audience just as it does today and it says, how are you happy? You don't participate in anything the world has to offer. And you say, but I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Salvation is old fashioned as all get out, but it is great. And I'm standing here as a living testimony of that. When you have radical life change, it's going to produce problems. People aren't going to understand, but don't fret. Your priorities are going to change when coming to Christ. And as your maturity increases, what we see is believers help other believers resist those pressures when opposition comes. That's why we have a church, because we encourage one another. We no longer justify participation in worldliness. We overcome it when we're submissive to Christ. But we have to be honest and acknowledge that following Jesus is better than being led by ourselves. Practicing abstinence instead of worldliness validates that we're different. And a lifestyle that abandons all restraint in pursuit of pleasure is folly. So follow the biblical commands. They're implemented not to harm you, but to guard you. They're here to help you. Let me ask you a question. Is the world surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery? And if the answer is no, they are not surprised. Good. Or, excuse me, I got that backwards. They should be surprised. Do they malign and slander you because you are ready to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead? God will protect and reward his people who suffer. He will hold their persecutors accountable on the day of judgment. You should remain steadfast. Realize that persecution and problems with sin is part of the walk with Jesus, and it's good. That when you have the cravings of the sinful world, it's good. That means that Satan wants a peace, and you push back. And he says, here's the reason. Here's the whole reason. And people keep asking me this. Jordan, when is end times? When, when's Jesus coming back? I'm a pastor. I don't know. I have no idea when he's coming back. I'll tell you what. I do know. Soon. 
Okay? Soon. He's coming back soon. Peter says, in light of all of this, you have to understand that eternity is upon us. We are living in the last days. I believe that with all of my heart. And look at verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, this is a tricky passage of Scripture. And though judged in the flesh the same way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. For this reason connects uh, the subject of 4 or 5, the one they will give account to, him who is the judge of the living and the dead. The gospel that was proclaimed even to the dead has caused a lot of debates among scholars. And it would seem that there's no explicit subject here. So who is preached and why is it was it believers or preachers or apostles or was it Christ himself? So we're going to break this down a little bit so that you can understand. And as you track with me, you're going to be like, why? Why is this so important? I'm going to show you in just a minute. Okay, It all is going to connect. Many times in the New Testament, when passive form of preach is used, it's Christ who is preached and not Christ who is preaching. Acts speaks about this and so does Galatians. Here, though, in Peter, the word is in past tense, preached. Actually, the word in Greek is conveyed. It's not is preached or is being preached. In context, though, we call this pictorial context because it's Peter's words in context. So we have like Jordanian con- context, okay? Which is how I speak to Bethany all the time. All right. He says, in context, it's speaking of something already been preached. Now, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he must bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay? And that passage continues, and he's saying that Christ descended into hell after crucifixion to proclaim, to convey, to preach his victory to the human spirits in the days of Noah, those who did not obey, who are awaiting final judgment from God at the end of the age. Peter's elaborating on a principle he's already talked about to show, as Christ proclaimed to those at his death, their outcome, this would be the same outcome, the dead, for those who reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Let's track with me, stay with me, okay? When he says those who are dead, Peter's use of the dead means a group of people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, Old Testament or New Testament, I just labeled you. Old Testament, New Testament, okay? Didn't mean that. But he's saying anyone, when it was preached from whoever, could be God verbally in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, could be the prophets, Christ himself, apostles, whatever, and rejected him as Messiah. Those who were dead were judged based on their standing with Christ, whether they were a believer or a non-believer. And we're alive, and that word is referring to eternal life given by God, which results in a right relationship with him through faith, or in the spirit, or eternally dead, which is completely separated. And so now, you know all that, right? You're probably thinking to yourself, so what? Why do I have to know that? Good question. This is why we study the Bible. Because what he's saying here, Peter is speaking to an audience who is worried if their loved ones who died before Christ's return might ever see Christ. First Thessalonians speaks about this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, 
about those who are asleep. Now, in the New Testament, when it says asleep, it's usually talking about people who know Jesus as Savior. And when it says dead, it's usually talking about people who don't know Jesus as Savior. Okay? That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen, what? Asleep. Okay? Those who believed in a Messiah to come, Old Testament, will be uh, taken with Christ. Okay, we believe that they will be with Jesus. All right? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. A is a reference that I forgot to take out. It's not really in the biblical text. That we who are alive right now, believing in Jesus Christ, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and this should make you happy, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive, who are living, who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who are left, they'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Okay? And so... We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what are you supposed to do with that? Encourage one another. Why don't we tell people this? I don't understand that. Why don't we tell people this? Like, don't worry. It's going to be okay when we get to heaven. Everything will be okay. All right? Now, but why do I have to know that? Because Peter's audience is wondering if those who died would be able to experience the promise of eternal life like they would. And as selfish as people may seem, this is a common question that we get when we experience funerals all the time. People ask me this all the time. Jordan, will my loved one be, be with Jesus? And here's the craziest part about the whole thing. They can't see two feet in front of their face because that person's already made their decision. The question is, have you made yours? That's what Peter is saying. He's like, you're so concerned about other people. But the question is, where are you going to be? When this is all said and done. So Peter explained to these believers, though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, meaning died physically as everyone died, will someday live in the spirit as God day if they had a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Now you're still sitting here going, okay, so how does it pertain to me? We wonder the same thing today about our loved ones. We wonder if they made a decision to follow Christ, and their choice does one of two things. Number one, it either causes us to rejoice that their fate of eternal life because of a relationship with God through Christ is secured, and we have the same relationship. It either causes us to rejoice. We're like, man, I love it. My grandpa monkeys with Jesus. Right? It causes us to rejoice. Or number two, we are so pained with the reality that somebody rejected Christ's Messiah and will spend eternity separated from God that we harden our hearts and we don't accept Christ. Because we look at God and we're like, how could somebody who, who, uh, who, who loves us do that? He didn't do it, they did. It's their choice. And look at, with eternity in view, Peter uses the dead, righteous or unrighteous, for a catalyst to arm yourself to honor Christ. Okay, there's a perfect story about this in Luke. All right? This ties the whole thing together, and this is where I'm going to conclude. If you want to go here, you, you can. If not, story time with Pastor Muck. All right? <clears throat> Luke 16, verse 19. <clears throat> 
Now listen to this. If this is not our world, I don't know what is. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. <laughs> there was a team yesterday for the softball tournament that was clothed in purple. I kept thinking about this. This has no, that's totally non-biblical. Forget, forget the team in purple, okay? And he had fine linen who feasted some tuitpisly every day. If you don't know how to pronounce a word in the Bible, say it fast and confidently. People have no idea what you're talking about. 20. Now, pause for a second. Verse 19, that's Americans, okay? You can write in your Bible, Americans, that's us. We're, we're all that way. 20. And at his gate laid a poor man, and his name was, anybody know? Lazarus. And Lazarus was covered with sores. And he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 22. The poor man died and was carried by angels. Now, in context of the story, we realize that he had a, a relationship with God, okay? And he went to Abraham's side, which we would say is heaven. And the rich man also died. What an what a uplifting story. And he was buried. Now, I think it's interesting that he was buried. We can't unpack that right now. And in Hades, which is hell, okay? And if you were reading Hades there, that was the worst place uh, that you could go. So it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor, essentially, for hell. And he was in torment, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What do you think he thought? Not cool. Okay? And he called out. It's going to get loud. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. That's the cries of people who are in hell right now, okay? But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in a manner bad things, but now he is comforted here. And you were in, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm now that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Verse 27, he cries back out. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my family's house. If I can't be saved, maybe they'll be saved. For I have five brothers, and then they could warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have the Old Testament. They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear about the Messiah from them. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that somebody should rise from the dead. Now, the crazy thing about the story, ready for this? There was a dead man who rose and proclaimed Moses and the prophets, and his name is Jesus. And what we see here in the text, okay, is that there's a proclamation from the dead that you would arm yourself to accept Christ as Savior, living in honor of him because eternity is upon us. So here's the close. Bethany's going to come up, and then we're going to take communion, if you're comfortable with it. And, and 
I want you to kind of think about this as we, as we close today. May you see your earthly suffering with Christ-like eyes. If you're persecuted, if there's problems where you're trying to push back sin, my prayer for you today is that you would view all of that with Christ-like eyes. That suffering is beneficial. That it aids us in being armed with the same way of thinking of Jesus. And may you, in your suffering, whether you're persecuted or dealing with problems of sin, see that you can honor Christ in your suffering, and you can see the benefit of not lusting after human passions, but that would cause you to hunger for the word and will of God. And may you no longer live as unbelievers do in this world, but rather let those people malign you in the rejection of worldly ways. And when all is said and done, this is the best part, when all is said and done, when the time comes for final judgment, may you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, live in the Spirit now and forever so that you hear the words from Jehovah God, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's God's word. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and and the fact that it's truth, and now we have to wrestle with this and go and, and do And so, for some of us, it is to arm ourselves by uh, submission in your word. And we must go back and we must make a desire uh, or or make a a movement to be underneath your word and what it says. For some of us, that means we have to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have to confess that we're sinners and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is the only way to have a relationship with God. For some of us, our lives are not lived in honor to you. And so we must honor you by eliminating the world. And I would pray through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you would do just that to the people who are gathered here today, those who are listening online, and those who will listen to it later. That you would help us know, in ways that I can't communicate, that life is lived so much better when we submit ourselves to you and not to ourselves. And that in the abandonment of the world, we would see the lies of the devil, and that is that that will be something that fills us, and may we come back to the fact of the truth, which is your word fills us, and in a relationship with you, we are complete, lacking, as your word says, in nothing. And may we see in all of this, that the end is near, that eternity is upon us, that we're living in end times, that at any moment you can come and we will be caught up in the clouds together. And that the hand that beckons and pleads people who are far from you to come to know you and the hand that that holds up and pushes back your judgment will drop and that choice, the day of, of choosing, will cease. And may we live every single day with eternity upon us. That at any moment, it could be over. And until that day, may we be faithful with your word and what it says. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.